Hello and welcome to The Rye Cooter Story, a podcast dedicated to the music, movies, and career of slide guitar master Rye Cooter. My name is Frank. I'm a video producer, podcaster, and lifelong Rye Cooter fan from Berlin, Germany, bringing you this podcast with a little help from text-to-speech AI. This is episode two of the podcast, and if you haven't listened to our first episode, I recommend you do so right now. In episode one, we covered Cooter's youth, his early musical influences, and his beginnings as a stage performer. Today we'll talk about The Rising Suns, Hooter's first band and his entry into the music business. According to Rolling Stone magazine, they were one of the great what might have been stories of 60s rock. It's a dazzling tale of an early fusion of pop and blues music. It's about high hopes and narrow failures, about different styles and sensibilities that ultimately didn't mesh. Nevertheless, the rising suns became the stuff of legend. So here we go. The year was 1965. Bob Dylan was going electric, Motown was churning out hit after hit, and the British invasion, led by the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, was in full swing, spawning new bands like the Yardbirds, the Who and many others. In Los Angeles, the birds were the next big thing. Rye Cooter, who turned 18 in March, was hanging out at a Santa Monica folk bastion called McCabe's Music and performing regularly at the Ash Grove, then the center of West Coast folk music. As we learned in episode one, he was a precocious prodigy who was already well known in music circles for his collaborations with the likes of Jackie DeShannon and Pamela Pollan. He smoked cigars and had a penchant for vintage cars, driving an impressive maroon 1947 Packard Clipper. In a 1992 radio interview, he recalled, There was suddenly a moment when folk rock was viable commercially. I guess, thanks to Bob Dylan, and then the birds. This all hit in L.A. like a ton of bricks. It really went off. It set a lot of flares up, see? Suddenly everybody was into music and the Beatles and everything. I went to Santa Monica High School. There, music was considered ridiculous. It wasn't even something to talk about until the Beatles had their hit and then everybody started to let their hair grow. It was in this particular mood of departure that Cooter met a young, yet unknown blues singer from Massachusetts. His name, Taj Mahal. He would later write in his autobiography. One night, Jesse Lee Kincaid and I were playing the Ash Grove and Rye Cooter came to hear us. Rye comes up and asks if he could join in on the next set. Sure. Rye was and is a great instrumentalist. He knew a lot about blues, ragtime, country music, R&B. He had a good feel for indigenous music. He could render the music in a very believable manner whereas a lot of guys played a lot of notes that didn't have a lot of believability. The kid was out there. He had a good understanding of music business politics, too. All I can tell you, Cooter added in a 2022 interview with Tidal magazine, is that Ed Pearl, the owner of the Ash Grove, introduced me and Taj and walked away. So we started hanging out and playing. We got along and we liked the same stuff. Old blues was us. Born Henry St. Clair Fredericks in 1942, 
Taj Mahal's family moved from Harlem to Springfield, Massachusetts, when he was young. His mother sang in a gospel choir while his father was a noted jazz pianist and arranger. Henry Jr. developed an early appreciation for Charles Mingus and Thelonious Monk, but his greatest inspiration was the blues. His father was killed in an accident at his construction company when Henry was only 11. Later in college, he adopted the name Taj Mahal and led an R&B group called the Electras. According to Rising Sun's liner note writer Mark Kirkivy, he met a young 12-string guitarist named Jesse Lee Kincaid in Cambridge, Massachusetts in the early 60s. Kincaid had studied with his uncle, West Coast player, teacher in folkways recording artist Fred Gerlach, whom Taj knew by reputation and who, as mentioned in episode one, was also one of Rye Cooter's teachers. Kincaid had come east as a student of another blues master, the Reverend Gary Davis. In 1964, Kincaid convinced Mahal to join the burgeoning Los Angeles folk rock scene. They soon met the young Cooter, who was equally fascinated by the fluid possibilities of Roots music. Taj Mahal, things went really well, so I visited him at his place on Rambla Vista Road in Malibu. We sat out with our guitars and played and talked a bit. He was a real quiet guy. Rye had an upcoming gig at the Teenage Fair at the Hollywood Palladium. He was in charge of the Martin Guitar Booth, giving demonstrations, showing off the guitars. He invited Jesse and me to come out and play with him and a buddy of his, Gary Marker, who played bass. Gary Alfred Marker, born in Santa Monica in 1943, had been a childhood friend of Cooter's. He had taken up the clarinet at the age of nine and had since learned to play the alto saxophone, drums, cello, and double bass. Since the late 1950s, he had primarily played as a jazz bassist with a series of different jazz groups. Jesse Lee Kincaid told rock historian Bruno Siriati about their preparations. Since the event was to include amplifiers, I decided to borrow my friend Freddie the Freeloader's drum set and play the gate as a drummer, relying on my junior high school band experience as a drummer. Freddie delivered his sparkling silver Ludwig kit to the Palladium just before showtime. Taj and Rye played electric guitars, Gary played bass, and I played drums. We were a band. The fourth annual Teenage Fair was held at the Hollywood Palladium on Sunset Boulevard for eight days in early April 1965. There were bands playing inside and outside in booths and tents. It was basically a dance hall with a huge parking lot down on the infamous Sunset Strip. The concept of the teen fair was to find out what kind of merch would best appeal to teenagers. Ray Cooter and company were assigned to demonstrate Martin electric guitars and Vega banjos at the McCabe's Guitar Shop booth. Gary Marker told John Drumbo French, So many people clogged around because, you know, we were pretty unusual, an integrated group playing this funky crap in there instead of surf stuff that finally the fire department came in and said, you gotta get all these people out of the aisle. The guys in the booth said, we can't, that's what they're here for. So they moved us outside, they gave us a bigger booth on the midway. So, outside we went, where there was more room for people to wander around. You know, we still kept getting crowds. Taj Mahal added, All the other bands were guys wearing marching suits and playing Gloria and covering tunes of the day. 
We wore our ordinary street clothes and played some crazy Delta music. We were like a funky electric jug band. It drew a lot of kids. That made us think that maybe we got something going. So they formed a band with Taj Mahal on lead vocals, harmonica, and sometimes piano, Ry Cooter on lead guitar and mandolin, Gary Marker on bass, and Jesse Lee Kincaid on vocals and guitar. Edward Claude Cassidy from Illinois was recruited as drummer. Born in 1923, he was a little older than the rest of the band. He had begun his career as a professional drummer in the late 30s, served in the U.S. Navy during World War II, and since the late 40s had played with musicians such as Art Pepper, Roy Ayers, and Big Mama Thornton. In the early 60s, he met Gary Marker and played with him in the New Jazz Trio and the New World Jazz Company. King K came up with the pun Rising Suns as the band's name, and it was accepted. Just three weeks after the teenage fair, they were booked to play at the New Balladeer, a folk club in Los Angeles, followed by a multi-day engagement at the Ash Grove, beginning May 25th. Cooter. And so we went to Ed Pearl, who ran the Ash Grove, and said, here we are, now give us a job. And he did, naturally. You know, he didn't pay us anything. He said, open for somebody, just do some songs. And we did that. And now once again, ladies and gentlemen, for the very greatest and up-to-datest in rhythm and blues sounds, the Rising Suns. For six nights, two shows a night, the Rising Suns opened for blues singer Lightning Hopkins. Their sound was raw and dynamic. It must have felt strange and unusual to contemporary audiences and quite compelling. Taj Mahal sounded like a much older man and Rye Cooter's early, vibrating bottleneck guitar foreshadowed his later style. Like the Ash Grove recordings we heard in the first episode, we owe these recordings to sound engineer Barry Hansen, later a well-known radio DJ. He recorded everything that was played on stage from the mixing board and meticulously cataloged the performances. Many of these recordings are available on the Wolfgangs.com website and app. You'll find the link in the show notes. Dust My Broom, a famous blues standard by Robert Johnson and Elmore James, is performed with great fervor by the Rising Suns. I believe, I believe I dust my blues. I believe, I believe I dust my blues. But as in their later recordings, there is quite a gap between their expressive and authentic blues numbers driven by Cooter and Mahal in the more contemporary tunes like the Dylan composition Walkin' Down the Line, especially the singing is not that convincing. Just walking down the line Just walking down the line Just walking down the line 
in mind. Cooter played mostly on his Martin D28 with a pickup installed in the sound hole. Surprisingly, he didn't feel comfortable singing, but according to Kincaid, he did join in on one or two songs like Get Out My Life, Woman, and Long Tall Shorty. He would occasionally sing harmony. The other band members nicknamed him The Boy Wonder, and he, modest as ever, hated it. On the big Martin lead guitar, Ry Cooter. Paul J. Robbins, writing for the Los Angeles Free Press in July, mentioned him in a concert review. Ry Cooter, lead guitarist, looks like a mathematical prodigy who discovered music last week and has completely tripped out on the organic beauty of it and has gotten it all down nicely. He bobs and jerks in his misplaced tennis shoes with the distracted gaze of an Einstein as he constructs a brilliant skein of sound with his guitar. Fellow band member Jesse Lee Kincaid described Cooter's charismatic presence this way. Adding oddly to rise overall larger than a kid should be character was his artificial left eye, the kind that doesn't move when the other does, the result of a knife injury in youth. He didn't possess stereoscopic vision. This distinguishing feature gave him a pronounced carriage, the way he looked at a person or his guitar and held himself. Very direct, maybe in an effort to focus. Cooter dressed very put together, wearing good trousers, turtleneck jerseys under button-down tucked-in shirts, sport coats, stylish caps, and suede desert boots. The Suns played up and down the Sunset Strip at Ciro's, at the Whiskey-A-Go-Go, at the trip, opening for the likes of The Temptations, Otis Redding, and Martha and the Vandellas. They created a buzz of excitement with audiences and the Los Angeles press. They were even described as America's answer to the Rolling Stones, and it was in fact those very Rolling Stones who one night sat in the audience at a Rising Suns gig at the Ash Grove. Bill Wyman, Charlie Watts, and Keith Richards were particularly enthusiastic with Cooter's use of open tuning and bottleneck slide, playing techniques new to Richards. They would later prove to be highly influential on the Stone style, but more on that in our next episode of The Rye Cooter Story. In between gigs, in July 1965, Mahal found time to enter the fifth annual Topanga Banjo and Fiddle Contest. He entered the professional traditional banjo category and won with an outstanding performance of an old traditional called Colored Aristocracy. Ry Cooter had also entered the contest in 1963 as a 16-year-old student, as had string wizard and serial winner David Lindley. We will of course come back to him. In 1963, Cooter won in the advanced bluegrass banjo category, but had no further ambitions in the banjo field. He said in 2022, I was never headed for high banjo status. There were guys way further ahead, even on the West Coast. So I backed off. We can't all be J.D. Crow. These days, I play banjo okay. But back then, there was no future in it. He even sold his master tone banjo. He invested the $300 in the aforementioned 1947 Packard Super Clipper sedan. But back to the Ash Grove. Not only famous musicians came to the club, men in shiny suits began to show up as well. Record company men handing out business cards and expressing interest in the rising suns. Capitol Records, Warner Brothers, and Columbia all wanted them to come to their studios to do auditions. 
In rapid succession they visited all three, did their recordings and received offers from all of them. It all happened very fast, and our guys had no idea about contracts and fine print. Jesse Lee Kincaid recalled. At this point, Rice suggested that we might benefit by engaging an attorney, and he was acquainted with one Stuart Gordon. We were entering into unexplored territory with visions of mega success, touring the world, and hit records dancing before our ungrounded novice imaginations. It was becoming heady, moving too fast to comprehend. Attorney Stuart Gordon's offices were located in Beverly Hills at the corner of Wilshire Boulevard and Beverly Drive. Mr. Gordon was ensconced behind an enormous walnut desk, all garbed in a shiny dark suit with a tight white shirt, tie, and suspenders. He had a deep authoritative voice that bade us sit on hastily arranged chairs to be advised on the pros and cons of contract obligation being offered by the record companies. Mr. Gordon recommended that we choose Columbia, and he had their contract in hand. The truth was that neither I nor my companions knew the slightest thing about what we were doing at this juncture. Our ascendancy from scruffy sleep in the kitchen folkies to one stage under the spotlight celebrities was happening quickly. We had no plan, no manager, and were rife with naive expectation. Ry Cooter added in a 2022 interview with Relix.com, The next thing we knew, we had a record deal, for heaven's sake, because the record companies were running around town like headless chickens, scared to death that they might miss the next birds. This was a time when, if you had little sunglasses and spandex pants and a velour shirt, if you dressed like the birds, you could get a record deal. So we signed with Columbia. They were on fire because of the birds and Paul Revere and the Raiders. In June 1965, they signed with Alan Stanton of Columbia Records. The company had very little experience with rock bands. To them, rock music was a singles business. Music albums without any hits were beyond their comprehension. They wanted hit singles and therefore assigned their star producer, Terry Melcher, to work with the Rising Suns. Melcher, born in 1942 to singer-actress Doris Day and trombonist Al Jordan, had helped to shape the surf sound of the early 60s. He knew the Beach Boys and as a staffer of Columbia Records, was instrumental in the success of Paul Revere and the Raiders and more importantly, the Birds, whose albums Mr. Tambourine Man and Turn, Turn, Turn he produced. Before the first recording session in September, Egg Cassidy was forced to leave the Suns. He drummed so fast and so long on Statesboro Blues at a club gig that he severely injured his wrist. However, the band wanted more of a rock drumming sound anyway, so he was replaced by Kevin Kelly, a first cousin of Chris Hillman of the Birds. Kelly, born in 1943, was also from California. He had started playing drums at the age of 11, switched to guitar at 16, and returned to drums after a three-year stint in the Marines. Kelly also played saxophone, piano, and bass. The Rising Suns returned to Columbia Studios on September 9, 1965 for the first of 12 recording sessions that lasted through May of the following year. Little did anyone know that this was the beginning of the end. The band recorded three songs that day, Statesboro Blues, 
walking down the line and the girl with green eyes, but it would be nearly three decades before they were finally released. Here we go. Statesboro Blues, take one. One, two, three, four. It's the Statesboro Blues, and according to a later Rolling Stone review, it cooks like the cavern-era Beatles with a hellhound on their trail. The song dates back to 1926, when it was written and sung by blues legend Blind Willie Mactell. The title refers to the town of Statesboro, Georgia, where the narrator, Willie Mactell, is trying to convince a woman to come to the country with him. He suffers from a mysterious ailment, the Statesboro Blues, which seems to be some kind of epidemic. Mama got him, Papa got him, Sister got him, everybody got him. I'm going to the country, Mama, do you want to go? If I can't take you, I believe I'll take three, four more. The song uses simple blues chord progressions in energetic delivery, but sounds a bit thin today. The bass trebly and compressed, the drums likewise thin and the guitars buried in the mix. Still, it's two and a half minutes of good clean blues fun. Mahal would pretty soon reuse it for his debut album. Later, it was also covered by artists such as John Mayall, Chris Smither, and most famously, the Allman Brothers Band in 1971. In his autobiography, Mahal told a little episode that shed light on the problems the band had with the studio or the studio with the band. We were in the studio recording a bottleneck guitar piece based on Travelin' Riverside. We're calling it Down in the Bottom because the first line is, Meet me down in the bottom. Bring my traveling shoes. We got the tune going, got the vocals to go through, and then Rice starts to play a bottleneck solo. Midway into the song, a buzzer from the production booth comes in. What's that weird, eerie, sliding, distorting guitar? Alan Stanton asked over the intercom. He was the head of A&R. We looked at each other, couldn't believe it. Rye held up the bottleneck and said, it's supposed to sound like that. Those guys didn't know what a bottleneck guitar was. That was our warning. Jesse Lee Kincaid added, this label and this producer was to prove entirely the wrong move for us as a band. We weren't the Beatles who had been a band for years all from the same place, or the Rolling Stones, more or less in the same zone. We had just come together, founded on blues and some pop, and we weren't a hit song machine which is what these cats were hoping for. In retrospect, we would have been better served going with a small record company who nurtured the folk performers, like Vanguard who had Joan Bays, but the companies who reached out to us were the big labels and there we were, and we didn't know the in and out yet. In December, they recorded Tulsa County, an original penned by Cooter's friend and former musical partner Pamela Polland. Kincaid sang the lead on the bird-style country song. But I've since I've come to Tulsa County and I really don't know what I'm gonna do. Yes, I moved it down along the southern border Cause I feel I've got to get away from you I don't know just where I'll go 
the night of the recording, Bob Dylan, his road manager and guitarist Robbie Robertson, later of the band, stopped by to listen to Columbia's new discovery. They stayed for more than an hour. Mahal had played the same circuit with Dylan in the early 60s, and the two had always admired each other's work. In February of 1966, Columbia released The Rising Sun's first and only single, Candyman, a popular, faster version of a traditional that is sometimes credited to blues singer Reverend Gary Davis. Rye Cooter kicked the song off with his six-string Gibson. Taj Mahal played the bass part. He just grabbed the bass during the recording session and, according to Kincaid, delivered a noticeably fuller tone than Gary Marker's playing. Kincaid was the leading voice. He had been familiar with the song since early 1964 when the Reverend Gary Davis had stayed with him in Los Angeles and taught him some music. Davis had learned the song in his teens but wouldn't play the lyrics. After all, Candyman was slang for a drug dealer. Cooter later overdubbed the recording with a mandolin that goes into a melodic solo dueling with his own solo guitar. Columbia believed in the success of the record and cranked up the marketing machine. They appeared on Johnny Carson's Tonight Show and on Dick Clark's Where the Action Is, a sort of on-location American bandstand that had them lip-syncing Take a Giant Step on a Beach, later a signature song in the Hall's career and also covered by the Monkees. You've got to leave your yesterday behind And take a giant step outside your mind the Sun's version of Take a Giant Step is the best example of their daring do, wrote critic David Frick. A lith roadhouse overhaul of the Monkees' song, combining Taj Mahal's energetic howl and cooter's bottleneck maneuvers with bursts of cheesy 60s fuzz guitar and a weird Neil Birdsey a cappella vocal break. They definitely don't make him like that anymore. According to Mark Kirkaby, they even did a short promo tour for a shirt manufacturer. Filmed but never aired was their performance, including acting, in a TV show pilot for 20th Century Fox called The Sheriff, a contemporary western starring Gilbert Rowland. But it was all in vain. Candyman didn't catch on with audiences and never even made the Billboard Hot 100. Another nail in the coffin for the rising suns, as Kincaid discussed. The instantly identifiable vocals of Taj Mahal were sidestepped, instead putting the less skilled singer front and center. The reasoning behind this decision bears scrutiny as to what Columbia thought was appropriate. This action may have contributed to some dissatisfaction about our purpose and lack of trust in the record company that was to lead to our eventual demise as a group. My ego was flattered but I was chasing smoke and mirrors. 
What was the record company thinking? What other recordings would have made a good first single? Maybe the bluesy, If the River Was Whiskey, first recorded by Charlie Poole in the North Carolina Ramblers in 1930 with Mahal's powerful vocals. Or maybe the dynamic 11th Street Overcrossing that has Ry Cooter's signature bottleneck guitar all over it. But this is, of course, mere speculation. There was no other single, much less an album. The Rising Suns did their last recording session at Columbia Studios in May of 1966 and played their last and final gig in August of that year at the Santa Monica Civic Auditorium with first and only time drummer Frank Lupica. Right after, they disbanded, as Gary Marker explained. We were the problem. We had difficulties distilling our multiple musical agendas down to a product that would sell. We had no actual leader, no clear musical vision. I think Terry Melcher went out of his way to make us happy. Within his scope of knowledge, he tried just about everything he could. Added Terry Melcher. The thing about the birds was, they were all going in the same direction. Here you had guys who should have been in two different groups. If I had to do it over, I would found some Beatle-type group and put Kincaid in there and had another group with Rye and Taj. Rye Cooter rarely talks about the Rising Suns in particular detail. To him, they were, quote, Like a juke joint band, real raw, a real chaotic kind of thing. It wasn't really a group because nobody could agree even on what key to play a tune in. We weren't any good, but at least we were the first. So in the end, all 22 Rising Suns recordings ended up in Columbia's vaults, the lion's share forever unreleased. That is until 1992 when an archival CD titled Rising Suns featuring Taj Mahal and Rai Cooter was finally released by Sony Music to mostly favorable reviews. Excellent, a classic debut, wrote Q Magazine. Here's a lost album that genuinely deserves exhumation, said Stereo Review. A stone delight and a lot more than a historical footnote, judged Stereophile magazine. Rolling Stone magazine's David Frick even called The Rising Suns the missing link between Beatlemania and the late 60s electric blues explosion. And indeed, the album contains many exciting discoveries, most notably this blues tune, By and By, Pour Me. It's a song originally written by Charlie Patton, arranged by Taj Mahal and Jesse Lee Kincaid. It features Cooter Bottleneck at its best and is, according to Mojo's Paul Trinka, a jewel. Its delicate beauty anticipates the stone's wild horses, nearly half a decade later, and the whole roots revival. Mama shining down on me or take a listen to Linda Albertano's 210 Train, arranged by Cooter, 
a similarly soulful blues sung by Taj Mahal, later covered by the Stone Ponies with Linda Ronstadt. Woke up this morning Feeling sad inside I woke up this morning Good girl feeling sad inside Another highlight is the traditional Kareen Karina, first recorded in the late 20s by Charlie McCoy and Bo Chapman, later covered by more than 200 different artists. I've heard what whistle, I got a bird what Last but not least, and to end on a more upbeat note, 44 Blues, another much-adapted standard from the early 20s. Originally developed from a piano-based blues theme, it has been described as a barrel house honky-tonk blues. Important earlier recordings were made by Roosevelt Sykes and, in the 1950s, by Howlin' Wolf. As played by the Rising Suns, it's a particularly gritty blues that shows the band at the top of its game, with Taj Mahal's powerful vocals, a haunting harmonica, and Rye Cooter's driving guitar. I didn't know where in the world I could go. As a belated footnote, in 2001, the record company Sunday's Records did a restoration job and put 12 Rising Sun songs on vinyl. Even the artwork was designed to look like a vintage record cover. So where do we end up with the Rising Suns? They definitely broke new ground with their mix of blues, country, folk, and pop. Especially their live performances enriched the music scene of the time with a new stylistic approach. Indeed, the Suns do sound, at turns, like a band drawing from the current musical trends and looking ahead to a rebirth of interest in blues, writes Fred Metting in his book, The Unbroken Circle. In that respect, they were related to contemporary bands like Canned Heat or the Butterfield Blues Band. But as we've seen, they never managed to form an organic unity. The fact that their music was not only diverse, but sometimes bordered on arbitrary in its stylistic variety, was not even the biggest problem. Probably more serious was that neither the band nor the record company were experienced enough to handle something as new as the Rising Suns. They were too young and ahead of their time. But at least the band became a stepping stone for almost all of its members. Ed Cassidy went on to Spirit, Kevin Kelly to The Birds. Taj Mahal launched his solo career a year later, and Rai Cooter, as we'll see in our next episode, became a sought-after session musician and almost a member of the Rolling Stones. Not to mention the late happy ending of Cooter and Mahal reuniting in 2022 for the album Get On Board, which beautifully closes the circle. We'll come back to that, but not anytime soon. And that brings us to the end of episode two of the Rye Cooter story. Thanks for listening. Next time, we'll talk about Cooter's beginnings as a session musician, particularly his collaborations with Captain Beefheart and the Rolling Stones. 
In the meantime, you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok, or visit our website. The links are in the show notes. If you want to support the podcast, please subscribe and leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. If you like what we're doing and want to recognize our work, please go to patreon.com slash story and become a member. There are three membership levels, aptly named One Meatball, Alimony, and Money Honey. Membership comes with all sorts of benefits. You get access to exclusive episodes with in-depth looks at selected Cooter guest albums. In fact, our first bonus episode will be released only one week from now. It tells the story of Taj Mahal's eponymous debut album from 1968, on which Cooter plays rhythm guitar and mandolin. In addition, members will receive our so-called Rye Cooter Timeline, the world's best attempt at a complete listing of all things Cooter, albums, movies, collaborations, writings, awards, and gigs. So what are you waiting for? Head on over to Patreon and become a member. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. Oh, 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 o